uh, having had a week to kind of review and reflect our review, are there any other questions or comments from the first three chapters of Mark, starting with um, the John the Baptist and just baptism in general, the baptism of Jesus, uh, the temptation, and then all the theological stuff that went along with that, the the Trinity, hypostatic union, uh, the impeccability of Christ, and into chapter 2, talking about uh, legalism, and chapter 3, talking about uh, no healing on the Sabbath, any stuff that was unsettled from our review time last week we want to go over before we jump into chapter 4 and 5. All right. Well, if something pops into your head throughout, we can always go back. Just want to give that opportunity. <clears throat> we'll open it up to Mark chapter 4, making sure your Bibles aren't flipped over upside down, and then opening up to Mark chapter 4. Um, what is the, the setting for Mark chapter 4? Where are these things taking place, essentially throughout the whole chapter? You guys recall? Yes, on the, the Sea of Galilee. So starting in verse 1 of 4, it says that he, Jesus, began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into the boat on the sea and sat down. The whole crowd was by the sea on the land. So even from the very first verse, he was teaching from the boat on the sea. And uh, he went throughout pretty much the, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 34, recount several different parables that Jesus was telling by the sea. Um, what is the, the twofold purpose of parables that we learned about in chapter 4? The dual purpose that Jesus had for speaking in parables and teaching in parables. Yes. So believers would believe and unbelievers would be confounded. It served the purpose of both revealing to those that he meant to reveal himself to and concealing truth from those that uh, he never intended to, to hear the truth. We can see that in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4. So verse 11 says that he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So the whole purpose was uh, to reveal to some and to conceal from others, and this twofold purpose really continues throughout the rest of the book, so we need to keep that in mind. Now these parables that we looked at in chapter 4, they were related in some way to the kingdom of God. So what are some things that we learned about the kingdom of God from the various parables in Mark chapter 4? From the parable of the sower and the soils, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the man who cast seed and then went to sleep, and the parable of the mustard seed. What are some things that these parables teach us about the kingdom of God? Amen. Good. Well put. At the, the word is going to produce its 
it's going to accomplish its purpose that it's been sent forth for. And again, there's a, a dual purpose for some to receive it and to bear fruit, and it will fall on others and they will not bear fruit. But God's word indeed never returns void. Good. Any other teachings we can glean from the parables of the kingdom? What about the mustard seed? What did that parable have in mind? What was that portraying to us? It's inconspicuous to begin with. Yes. Inconspicuous. That's a, a good word. wonder how many mustard seeds people just looked over without realizing the, the value. Just, it is a trip to, to think about how that little tiny seed has a potential to grow into something huge and amazing. And even more so, thinking about the the organism of the church, of the kingdom. Um, remember, the church is one facet of the kingdom. The kingdom is more encompassing even than the church and reaches back into to include the Old Testament saints and even into the future, tribulational saints and millennial saints are all going to be a part of this big kingdom of God, um, what God is doing in, in his plan and his program with his people. And we are just a small part of the the universal church, and the universal church is just a part of the kingdom of God. So it's cool to uh, to think about and to get a little bit of perspective. I think the mustard seed also, at least for me, <clears throat> tends to humble us. Sometimes we think we're such great people of faith. Mm-hmm. And he tells us later that you just have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. You know, <laughs> yep. And also later he talks about having to first die to yourself, right? Unless the, the seed falls to the ground and, and dies and can't bear any fruit. So we have to first die to ourselves. We have to be humble to begin with, right? Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, those who are begging, those who realize, I, I got nothing. Uh, I think that's what the, the parable of the seed back in verse 26 really talks about. Um, it says that the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed on the soil. He goes to bed at night and he gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. All he does is cast a seed and God is the one who, who gives the increase. God is the one who does something. Uh, again, reminding us of our, our depravity, of how, how lowly we are it really should draw us to humility. All right, and then... Glancing down to the, the very end of the chapter, remember, um, he, he was teaching parables up until verse 34, so verse 35 says, On that day, the same day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. So he didn't have to uh, get back out of the boat, they didn't have to go dock or, or port or do anything else. He just went after teaching all day from the, the boat on the Sea of Galilee, these parables. They just said, okay, well, let's go to the other side. And so they set off on this journey that would typically be a, a two-hour journey. And they encountered this crazy storm that even the, the disciples who were fishermen, who were experienced fishermen, they found to be troublesome. And they were terrified by the storm. And they woke up Jesus and they said, are, are you going to help us? Do you even care about us? And Jesus, of course like a boss, calm the storm, right? And then in verse 41, it says that they became very much afraid. So why were the disciples very much afraid in verse 41? 
they're like I said, like, who is this? And it's just very, I can't imagine being in that position. You're, you're very intimidated, you're, you're in awe, right? Yeah. It's just an overwhelming miracle for them, of course. Yeah. Yeah, they were in absolute awe, not of the the storm. They they were terrified of the storm before, but now they became very much afraid. They became even more terrified. Uh, this is a, a phobia that they had within them, realizing the great power and majesty and authority and holiness of Jesus. Just have witnessed his absolute power over creation, uh, drew them to to awe and wonder, saying, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Um, That just leaves your mouth open, right? Just awestruck, unable to even say what kind of fear they were experiencing. And that's where we enter into our text this morning, into Mark chapter 5. So in Mark chapter 5, I'll go ahead and read the first five verses here. It says that they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Actually, I'll, I'll stop there. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. So, um, as I said before, it takes, on average, if weather's good and things are going well, it takes two hours to cross the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Luke eight twenty six said that they went to the other side of to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So you can see on our map here that Galilee's over on the, the left side, kind of in the, the upper center of your screen. And then the Sea of Galilee is right there on the right. And so they traveled from left to right, from west to east, over to the right side. And it would have taken about two hours. And then it says in verse 2 that when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Um, in Matthew's account, Matthew says that there were two men, whereas Mark and Luke, they just choose to focus on the one man, uh, perhaps because he was more afflicted with the, the demons. This, we're going to read on and see that this man is indeed inflicted by this legion of demons, um, or perhaps because he's the one who's in view later on, who comes back and wants to, to follow after Jesus. But for whatever reason, Mark and Luke focus on the one, whereas Matthew speaks of the two. And I want you just to, to glance down, look through verses 3 through 5, and um, see how the text describes this man who we're going to be focusing on this morning. What does the text say about this man uh, in verses 3 through 5? What are some things? Go ahead and shout them out when you see him. He was wild, strong. Yeah, he was incredibly strong. Wild is a, a good word, good way to, to sum him up. Lived among the tombs. Yes, he lived among the tombs. People think that they were carved out of the rock, that you kind of go in them and um, bigger tombs than what we think of, not like a a six-foot casket that's buried six feet down on the ground, but big carved out tombs, and that's where homeless people would live or transients would live. They would stay among the tombs, and that's where this man was found. What else do we see? It also says he was crying out and cutting himself with stones, so he was very loud and probably really bloody and dirty. Yes. Yeah, not the kind of person you really want to run into, right? Like you said, wild and scary and bloody and dirty and, uh, yeah, loud. It says day and night he was uh, crying out or screaming out, right? Uh, Just this past week I was talking to Brittany's sister. She lives in an apartment right by 
uh, I-15, downtown I-15, like uh, probably a lot of people that might fit this kind of characteristic, wild and, and loud and dirty. And she says that uh, she actually finds the sound soothing. The car's going by at night. I thought, well, that'd be kind of hard to get used to. And I've heard from other people who live by a train or something. That's hard to get used to. Uh, in fact, one time I, I heard a story about uh, during World War II when they were driving uh, captive prisoners through to go to concentration camps. These uh, Jews and other people who were set to be murdered, and they were screaming and yelling and crying from the trains. There was a little small Baptist church that was situated right there along the train side. And uh, they would say that they could hear them crying and screaming and yelling for, for help whenever they would drive by. And when they would hear, when the Jews driving by heard the music from the church, it would scream louder, thinking there's people there. And then the people in the church would sing louder. They would sing their hymns louder so that they wouldn't, they could drown out the, the cries of these people who were uh, headed off to slaughter. Um, that's probably a lot more like what this man's yelling and screaming would be like night and day, just tormenting, um, not the comforting sound of, of cars going by, if you do in fact find that comforting. But yeah, night and day, this man was screaming and crying out. And, and he was uncontrollable, so there were people probably yes. afraid. He just comes out of the tombs. havoc on all of us nobody gets subdued. Yes. Nobody could subdue him. Is there anything else around those that phrase that is intriguing to us? He could break a chain. Yes, he could break a chain. He was super strong, right? And you look with me at verse 3. It says that he was dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, which means that at one point they could bind him, right? And... The fact that they could no longer bind him means that they have since tried and they've done so unsuccessfully. So at one point they could bind him with these chains and they worked and that kind of solved the problem for a season. But to come in and one day find him to be even more strong and more capable to the point that they couldn't subdue him means that he at some point was able to overpower them. Uh, that's a, a little bit concerning, right? This bloody scary wild man who's screaming night and day, able to break chains and these guys approach him and they're unsuccessful in binding him. Um, one question that came to my mind when I read over that is, how could he gain this, this strength and this power um, if he was at one point tameable and able to be controlled and now he is no longer able to be bound anymore? What changed? The demons. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah. What'd you say, Britt? Yes, a legion of demons, right? Uh, Luke 11, 24 through 26 says, and this is not a parallel passage, but it's a pertinent passage. It says that when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, even more evil than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. 
So yeah, I think you guys are right. There are more demons that enter this man. They somehow might become stronger, more uh, self-empowered. But what we see from this text back in Mark 5, specifically in verse 3, is that he grew in strength. And this became an even bigger problem, not just for the man, but for the community that he was living in, that they were no longer able to bind him at that point. So kind of compiling some of these things together, we read in these verses, uh, we see that this man can't be bound, that he is indeed extremely strong, even able to break chains, that he is constantly screaming night and day, and he is now mobile. Do you notice that in, I think it's in verse 4, that because he, um, nope, verse 5, says constantly night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains. So he's moving around from the tombs and the mountains. Uh, he is mobile, able to, to get around because he's not able to be chained and bound into that one place. So he's now mobile, uh, self-harming. And Luke adds that he's running around naked, doing all these things. So not only bloody and dirty, but uh, naked. Luke eight twenty seven says that he had put on, he had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. So yeah, bloody, dirty, naked, crazy wild man. Um, not, again, the kind of person that you want to run into. This is a, a terrifying description of this wild man that uh, comes up and he approaches Jesus as soon as Jesus lands. It says that when he got out of the boat, immediately this man came from the tombs with an unclean spirit and met him. And then it gives this terrifying description. We see uh, Matthew is... Uh, describing him as being so extremely violent that nobody could even pass by. People weren't able to, to go by there and um, just partake in their, their regular everyday type of activities because this man was impeding upon their, their freedom, infringing upon their, uh, their everyday normal life. And this quote here from Warner Forrester, he says, in most of the stories of possession, what is at issue is not merely sickness, but a destruction and distortion of the divine likeness of man, according to creation. The demons seek to ruin the man and sometimes drive him to self-destruction. Uh, this is the, the purpose of the demons. This is what they, they live for. This is what they're doing. They want to uh, seek to distort and destroy, particularly the, the image of God in man. They have that as their, their desire, to, to take and to distort the image of God. Uh, John 10.10 10 says, speaking of Satan, that the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Uh, that's his, his purpose. That's his goal. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour, right? First Peter 5. Um, and here we see the, the demons, his demonic forces, doing the same thing, trying to seek to destroy and pervert and, and mar the image of God in this man. Any other thoughts, questions on those first five, five verses looking at the man? Yes, Jim. Okay, this is verse six. <clears throat> no, you're good. What do you got? It says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. All right. Is, is that New King James? Huh? Is that New King James or King James? New King James. New King James. All right. So let's, let's look that. Does yours have a version? Uh, uh, no. Who's got a, a different version that's not NASB and not New King James? Anybody have an ESV? Or? Yeah, what do you got? I, I don't have the worship portion. 
Ah. What does your say in verse 6? Mine just says, uh, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. All right, so he fell down or he, he bowed down, he prostrated himself. Uh, proskuneo is the word. And oftentimes it's used as worship, but I don't think that this should be understood as worship. It's showing respect. Showing. Yeah, more, more reverence than worship. Uh, bowing down, realizing who he is. And we'll see that as we, we go throughout this. Um, in fact, we see right away that this man immediately recognized Jesus and he approached him with a, a familiar response. So he didn't have to um, be introduced to Jesus. He knew who he was right away. In fact, he ran up and uh, as we saw, he's the one who introduced himself to Jesus. Um, we know that this is the first time that Jesus is in this region over on the, the east side of Galilee. So how is it that this demon-possessed man knew who Jesus was? Was it possible that the demon knew who he was? The man probably did not. Yeah. So or how did... Good. That's a good distinction. So how does the, the demon or the, the group of demons, how are they aware of Jesus? Because they live in a different realm. They know who he is. Yeah, because they have history with him, right? And they can see in the spiritual... Well, we can't see the battles and the spiritual battles that are going on around us with our human eyes. Yeah. They are engaged in that. And they are... They recognize their enemy. Yep. James 2.19. Mm-hmm. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Yep. Good. So not only do they know who Jesus is, not only do they have this history with Jesus, um, we've referenced before, maybe one day we need to go back and look, and we will a little bit here in Isaiah, but we'll need to go back and look at Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and go and look forward at Revelation 20, or not 22, uh, 12, and they all reference the, the ex- expulsion of Satan from heaven, how Satan was cast out of heaven, and he took a third of the angels with him. And so, again, these demons have a history with Jesus, and as Logan mentioned from James 2.19, they have a, not only a history, but an understanding of who he is. They understand there is one God. We'll see throughout this text that demons actually have fairly decent theology. Uh, they are pretty orthodox as far as it comes to their understanding of theology. Orthopraxy, um, they're, they're quite off, right? They don't put this orthodox into practice in a way that they should. But as far as their theology, they're, they're pretty on. So let's look at these other references that I put up here in, in yellow. These other cross-references of demons who approach Jesus with a, a similar response. Who's got Mark 1, 23 and 24? Go for it. Yep. Just as there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. All right. So that's very similar to what this legion man in Mark 5 says, right? Uh, What business do we have with each other? You are the Holy One of God. And then what about chapter 3, verse 11? Who's got that? And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. All right, so that verse is even more encompassing, all-encompassing, right? It says, whenever the unclean spirits approached him. Uh, That's pretty uh, inclusive, right? Anytime they approached him, they said, 
And they shouted before him, you are the son of God. And that's exactly what we see back here. Um, that seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up, bowed down before him, and shouted with a loud voice and said, verse 7, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. So they were uh, conscious of their, their disparate circumstances from Jesus, right? They knew that they didn't mix. They didn't go well together. They were like water and oil. Um, that they didn't belong together. And uh, in fact, they, they seemed to think that, um, that they were safe where they were on that side of the Sea of Galilee. They said, Jesus, what are you doing here? What business do we have with each other? Um, they were, again, aware of the fact that there was something different between who they were and who Jesus is. And uh, we see again that he refers to himself as, or he refers to Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. Uh, we see this title often used in the Old Testament. So I want to go back and look at some of these Old Testament references. Um, and I just referenced that chapter in Isaiah 14. That's where we do see Satan being cast out. Will somebody grab that passage, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15? And somebody else could grab the other passage in Psalm 18, and I'll make my way to Psalm 89. We'll take a look at how this title, the Most High God, is used in the Old Testament. The same title that is applied to Jesus here in Mark 5. So who has Isaiah 14, 12 through 15? Okay. All right, go ahead, Jim. How are you fallen from heaven, worshiper, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground? You are weakened. You who weakened the nations. All right, hold on for a second, Jim. I should have set the stage a little bit. So this is talking about the, the king of Babylon specifically, but uh, we know from the context that it's in reference to Satan, and he's being called out as this man who uh, lifts himself up. He's full of pride. Um, and, yeah, go ahead and start, start that verse over. Sorry, Jim. You start over? Uh, just with that verse you were on. That's fine. That was verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above all the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. All right. So, again, this this pride-filled man compared to Satan. Satan did just that. He said, I'm going to ascend to, to be like the Most High. He recognized God is the Most High, and that pride within him made him want to ascend to that position of the Most High God. Uh, Psalm 18, 13 through 15. Who's got that? All right. Yep. Okay. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. All right. Did you go through 15? All right. So uh, we see there that this most high God has power over creation, that he 
commands lightning. He um, has the the breath of fire in his nostrils and all this um, poetic imagery used to describe this most high God and the absolute power and authority that he has over uh, creation. It's a, a title that is associated closely with the sovereignty that God has over other false gods and is often attributed that way. And then the last passage I want to look at is in Psalm 89. And starting in verse 20, uh, we see that David is in view here. So it says, uh, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. And then jumping down to verse 27, it says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. So this is speaking of David and his Davidic covenant, the promise that was made to David, that he will have somebody to sit on his throne forever. And that promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, that Christ is to be the, the highest. He is to be the most high who fulfills that position as the, the king of David. And uh, it seems like, over here in, in Mark chapter 5, that these demons, this legion of demons within this man approach Jesus and they realize who he is. They say, what business do you have with us, son of the most high God? Realizing the association between the, the most high God of the Old Testament, the most high God that Satan wanted to aspire to be, the most high God um, that Jesus was. Um, they, they come before him and they bow down. Again, they have... Uh, fairly decent theology. Um, they have the ability to recognize who Jesus is. Um, their, their doctrine is solid, but their submission isn't there. They didn't call him um, Lord in the sense that they bowed the knee to him, that they were ready to submit themselves to him. And we see, um, going a little bit further down, that... Well, at the end of verse 7, he says, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking, what is your name? He said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so we see here that he was at the mercy of Jesus, uh, begging not to be tormented prematurely. I put prematurely in, in quotes there because um, in Matthew's account, Matthew eight twenty nine. It says, are you going to torture us before the appointed time? So the demons, they knew and understood that it was God's job, really, to, to torment them. That he is a just God, and he was going to punish them for their uh, disparate situation. For the fact that they are um, dark, evil, spiritual beings. And light has uh, no union with darkness. So they realize not only are they to be judged, but they realize the, the timing of this judgment and that it was, in fact, premature. That's not um, the appropriate time for them to be judged. So again, they had quite good theology, even realizing those intricate, intricate details. Uh, in verse 9 that we just read, we see when Jesus asked, what is your name? We know that he's not... Uh, oblivious of this fact, right? Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus is God. 
But when he asked what his name is, he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. This name, this word, this title is from a Roman military term, and it refers to a group of up to 6,000 soldiers. So that's a, a large group of soldiers that would be within a, a legion of Roman soldiers, and that's how this man describes himself. Um, so we see that there are a lot of demons within this one man. Again, we see he became stronger over time. Uh, they at one point could bind him, and now he's just breaking through chains. He is absolutely wild and uncontrollable. And some have suggested that uh, there's a, a leader of these 6,000 demons, a spokesman of sorts, which kind of explains the, um, the, the difference of, of language that's used, both the plural and the singular pronouns that are used here in verse 9, when he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. That there's a, a spokesman of the demons who kind of speaks up, and he's representing all these demons, speaking to Jesus. Uh, and it's interesting to note that um, this, this man's identity, this man had a name, right? This man was, was born to, to parents, and surely they gave him a name, and he grew up in a community, and they called him uh, Frank or Bob or, you know, whatever. And this man's identity was being completely hijacked by these demons. Remember, again, that the, the purpose of demons is to take and to distort the image of God in man. And so Jesus approaching this man ask, what's your name? And the, the demons speak up and say, we are legion. They have completely overtaken this man. Um, they have robbed him of, of everything that he had. We see in, in verse 10 that he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. So the demons, they were, they were enjoying themselves, right? They had taken up residence within this man. They had the, the run of the place. You're going throughout the tombs, throughout the mountains, and they liked where they were. They wanted to stay in that country. And they were imploring Jesus. So once again, Jesus' authority is being put on display. That these demons realize that even though they commandeered this man, they couldn't do so without the authority of Jesus. This greater man who came up, landed on the seashore, and they ran up to him and they asked him, can we... Can we stay in this area? Can we stay in this region? Even though they were the ones who kind of had that, that area, right? That was their stomping grounds. Jesus came there, and they're asking him now for permission. We see his authority. And what is it that we learn about the, the demons from verse 13? Verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herds rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. What are some things we can learn about the demons from that verse? Their anarchists, chaotic. Yeah. And they destroy whatever they touch. Yeah, amen. That's a good way to put it. They're chaotic anarchists who destroy everything they touch. Uh, I really like this quote from Chrysostom. He's a 4th century theologian. He said, he did this... Uh, cast the demons into the pigs so that you might know that the demons would have done the same thing to human beings and would have drowned them if God had allowed them to do so. But he restrained the demons. He stopped them and allowed them to do no such thing. When their power was transferred to the swine, it became clear to all witnesses that they would have done what they would have done to persons. 
or to this man, had they been allowed to stay in this man, that was their goal. That was their desire all the time, to destroy and to distort. And we see that demonstrated and uh, coming to its full fruition in the, the swine. And I think it's a, a reasonable thing to suggest that's what they would have done had they been permitted to stay within the man as well. Do you have something, Sam? No. Uh, I don't know. There's another passage here that kind of, like, on that same vein there, uh, verse 10, I don't know what you guys have, but it says, and he begged, uh, the, the demon begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Um, what, what does that mean? Like, obviously it wasn't to, like, send them out, because apparently they could just be free and do whatever they wanted afterwards, as yeah. long as they had permission to do so. So what were they scared of Jesus doing here particularly? Uh, again, I think they, they liked where they were. I think they liked that, that region. That was kind of their, their home ground. Um, this was a, a Gentile area as opposed to a Jewish area. And along with that comes a lot of idolatry, a lot of false worship, a lot of very demon-esque type things. And, I think they were just comfortable in that region. But beyond that, I can't really give an answer. Any other thoughts? Well, like in that earlier passage, it said that they wander in wild places. Waterless places. Yeah, and I think that they enjoy torturing human beings. Yes. And uh, sharing the misery, so to speak. And uh, even though they were bound at some level, by God in the man. Once they were in the swine, it was like, um, you know, these are animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as we, we, as we carry on, I think we will see that they had at least a somewhat effective ministry in that area. It was a, a godless area. It was a, a pagan area. And I think they, they had grown to, to like that area. Their, their purpose, once again, is to destroy and to mar the, the image of God. Yes? It would kind of imply there's not a lot of places for the demons to go. I mean, evidently, they can't just go into anybody everywhere because, you know, in the other one, it says uh, the parable of the strong man said that yes. when they are cast out, they go through a dry, arid yeah, waterless place. place. And then they decided to go back to where they came from. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Because they found it, it swept and clean, and they thought, well, this yeah. is a, a good, perfect place for us to go. Yeah. And I don't understand that totally, but mm-hmm. it sounds like there is a limited places for people, if yeah. you will. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to understand that either. Um, <laughs> I do know that he who is greater than, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so I... I'm firmly opposed to the idea that demons can possess a Christian, so they're at least limited in that respect. And um, we could get into all kinds of stuff, talking about uh, pornea and the different avenues that really open up um, the, the ability for, for demon possession and drug use and different things that are more closely associated in Scripture with, with demon possession. But... Uh, let's move on to verse 14, because I'm definitely not prepared to, to travel down that road. Well, um, it's obvious that God, in his grace, restrains Satan yes. far more than we 
because yeah, that is their intent to destroy anything of God. And so throughout the world, yeah, we see fantastic acts of demon possession and you know, heard here of them, but mm -hmm. there's the rare events that God permits. Otherwise, we'd all be like that. Yeah. yeah. So we can see the, the sovereignty of God that was recognized even by the demon um, and how they need the, the permission of God to go anywhere. And again, kind of back to my previous point, going even to Romans 1, how God has given them over to their sin. I think when we enter into certain activities, um, that it opens up, that, that God gives Satan even, uh, privilege and authority to, to go into Rome in different places. But all of that is absolutely under the, the sovereign authority and sovereign care of God. All right, let's look at verses 14 through 17. I'm going to read these verses. And as I read through this text, I want you to listen carefully to what the text says about how the people respond uh, without trying to read in between the lines, because I think we're, we're guilty of doing that oftentimes. So verses 14 through 17 of Mark 5 says, Their herdsmen ran away and reported it to this in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him, to leave their region. So, oh, yes, after, in verse 14, we see that the, the man is fully restored, right? This man who was once naked and beating himself and wild and bloody, uh, this demon-possessed man was now sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. It says, just to clarify, it's the very man who had had the legion. And what is the, the response? from the crowd that had come to witness these things. They were afraid. Yes. Very. They were terrified, right? Um, this is very similar to what we saw back at uh, verse 41 of chapter 4. Um, seeing this crowd, they became fearful, and they asked Jesus to leave. Um, again, same thing we saw back there, that it wasn't so much the storm that freaked out the disciples as much as it was the response to the storm and seeing Jesus calm the storm. That's when they became very much afraid. And when they saw this man clothed and in his right mind, this man who was uh, written off by them as this wild dude who they tried to chain up and weren't even able to chain up, they again became very afraid and even asked him to, to leave, to get up out of the region. Um, Luke 8.37 kind of makes this a little bit more clear for us. It says that they asked him to leave, for they were gripped with great fear. That was the, the purpose, the reason, the motivation for them to, to leave. Oftentimes people will suggest, well, they were upset about the, the pigs running off into the, the water. And, um, they, they had lost revenue, they had lost money. Uh, but we don't read that. That's not what the text says. The text says that they saw this man in his right mind, and that uh, brought about this fear within them. And that's why they asked him to leave, because they recognized that Jesus, the, the most high God, was there. They had seen Satan and his power, and they had seen Jesus and his power, and they really preferred Satan and what he had to offer. Um, 
light came out of the darkness, right? John 3.19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That is our, our natural disposition, that we are enemies of God. We love our sin. We love to, uh, to the, the cover of darkness that we have for our sin amidst other people's sin and what people are doing around us. I think that's why the demons really liked this area, the, why they didn't want to leave out of the country, because they were, even though they um, weren't welcomed with open arms necessarily, clearly they were more welcome there than Jesus was welcome there, because Jesus was asked to leave. Light came into the darkness, and the darkness said, yeah, we don't want any of that. We're not having anything to do with that. Um, oftentimes, people will say, atheists or agnostics will say, kind of in their own puffed-up pride, well, if God would only reveal himself to me, then I would believe, right? Um, it's Luke 16 that says, well, even if somebody rises from the dead, they're not going to believe. They have Moses, and they don't believe the words of Moses. They're not going to believe even if a, a man rises from the dead. And we see here, Jesus came into their midst. Not only did he come into their midst, but they, he rid them of this, this problem. He rescued this man from these demons that were impacting not only him, but the whole community. And they said, no, nah, get out. We, we don't want anything to do with you. Um, so for people to say, oh yeah, if only Jesus would, would show himself for me, if only God would, would do something for me, uh, first of all, Jesus said it's a, a wicked, adulterous generation that seeks after a sign, right? Uh, he had given plenty of signs. Everything that we have in the Bible, we have all that we need for, for life and godliness. And so for us to impose any other kind of requirement upon God is, uh, first of all, not our place because God alone is God. And secondly, it, it doesn't even uh, comport with reality because he has revealed himself and our, our wicked hearts are, are strong. We're not going to embrace Christ unless we have a heart to do so. Any other thoughts on the, the public response we see to this great miracle that Jesus performed and how everybody else uh, realized this miracle, saw this miracle? Yes? It reminds me of Jesus another parable, I guess, that he said after he had King went to a distant country to receive a kingdom, and his citizens sent a delegation after him, saying, "We do not want this man ruling over us." Yes. Put him on a sign. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Maybe Matthew twenty-one. I'm not quite sure. Uh, well, yes. when man was kicked out of the garden, eating of the fruit of the tree, man was capable of recognizing good and evil, and we're told that God has placed the knowledge of him within each person. Yes. So I think people recognize their own evil. We all do. The evil is within us. But those who are without God don't are afraid to have any righteous person or righteousness among us because we know that that condemns the evil that's within us. They don't understand and they're afraid. Yeah, and are self-condemned, right, for uh, refusing to to accept what God has placed within us. Um, the natural man doesn't want a righteous God. No. Because that, that condemns us. Yep, indeed. 
Well, we have two enemies, each and every one of us, and one of them is more pertinent to our lives, and that's the one inside of us, around the flesh, and desire not to bow the knee yeah. to Christ, because, again, it's, you know, God is completely outside of our control. We don't want to yield to the one that is the only one that deserves to be yielded to. Mm-hmm. And then we've got, obviously, like in this passage, we have enemies outside too. But of the two of them, the one inside is by far it's the hardest one to fight with. Yes. Yeah, so we're fighting on several different fronts, right? We are fighting with our, our sinful flesh, with the, um, the inherited sin that we get from Adam, right? That just as sin entered the world through one man, so death through sin, and therefore all have sinned, or all have died because all have sinned, because we are in Adam. And then we have um, satanic forces, demonic forces. I think oftentimes we give them too much credit, um, more so than really blaming our own sinful flesh. And then even in addition to those two sources, the world system is, which is affected by Satan. Satan is the, the prince of the power of the air. He's been given rule and dominion over this system and it's uh, taken effect. And so the, the outside world has the ability to uh, really affect our, our spirituality if we're not walking in Christ. All right, let's move on to verses 18 through 20, looking at the personal response of this individual man. Uh, verse 18 says that he was getting into the, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And so we see here that uh, this man seemed to be asking to be a disciple of Jesus. If we look back at uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, the same language is used. So he said, um, let's see, verse 18, the man who had been demon-possessed implored him that he might accompany him or he might go with him. Back in 3.13, when Jesus was getting his disciples and sending them out, says that he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority over the demons. And so he brought them to be with him. This man says, Jesus, I want to be with you too. So he's asking to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, uh, to... um, to submit himself to Jesus in contrast to these other people who said, no, get out of here. In contrast to the demons who recognize that Jesus is God, but they didn't want to bow the knee to God. And Jesus responded by saying, no, you're you're not going to come with me. But instead he sent him out to preach. He sent this man out as a missionary to Decapolis. Now, we looked at this map just a little while ago. You see over on the right side, down south of where Jesus had landed on the east side of uh, the Sea of Galilee, that whole region is the Decapolis. Deca means 12, right? And, uh, you've heard of metropolis talking about city. So 10 cities is what the Decapolis is. In this other map, you can kind of see them laid out, these 10 different cities. This whole region 
is where this man went out to preach. And uh, Jesus said, this is your mission. You're not going to come with me. You're going to go out and you're going to preach in the Decapolis. And he went out in this Gentile region to proclaim Christ. And this is a, a theme that we see throughout the book of Mark, throughout the whole New Testament, that the, the gospel has the power to save. It's for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, right? That the gospel first came to the Jews and now it's being expanded to the Gentile nation. We see here uh, just a little glimpse of that, that Jesus is saying, you're going to go and preach to these people. I came to the, to the lost house of Israel first, but um, even... The, the crumb that falls from the master's table is good enough for the, the Gentiles, right? So he said, you're going to go out and you're going to preach to them. And uh, we look at this man and his qualifications. How was this man qualified to go out and to, to preach? How was this man qualified as a, a missionary? In a lot of ways. Absolutely, in a lot of ways. But by our, our modern standards today, there are so many. You read back through great missionary stories and several of them were declined uh, a position. Uh, the the Bruchko man, what was his name? He went down to South America or whatever. He, yeah, Bruce Olson um, and uh, Hudson Taylor. They were both rejected. Even after like having medical degrees and years of mission training, they said, no, you're, you're not good enough to be a missionary with our organization. This man was sent out as a missionary after having demons cast out of him moments ago, right? Um, and all he had was this testimony of Jesus. He had seen Jesus. He had been impacted by Jesus. Uh, Acts 4, John and Peter were recognized not as these great theologians, not as these men who were scribes who went to some amazing school, but they were recognized as men who had walked with Jesus, who had been with Jesus. And now this formerly demon-possessed man had that same qualification, and he could go out and he could tell people about what Jesus had done for him, what he had experienced from the hands of Jesus. Um, then let me just get through this slide real quick. Oh, that's a lot. Oh, that's just one more. Okay. So we see um, at the very end, verses 19 and 20, that Jesus instructed this man to go out and to tell people what the Lord had done for him. And it said that this man went out and he told people about what Jesus had done for him. So this is a, a example of Jesus' deity. Jesus said, go and tell what the Lord, the the curios, the, the savior, the, the master that you bow the knee to, what he has done for you. And verse 20 says, a man went out and he began to declare what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. So Jesus had sent this man out as a, a missionary to declare of his deity and his absolute authority over not just the, the, the wind and the waves and how they obey him, but how Satan and his demonic forces are subject to the power of the, the Most High God. And I am over time, so we should probably pray and break for fellowship. God, we do thank you that you are the Most High God. We thank you that you became flesh, that you, you humbled yourself even to the point of death, and death on a cross for us, that you've taken our, the, the certificates of decrees that have been cast against us, and you've nailed them to the cross, that it is finished, and we are found in you, God, let us be found in you complete. Let us be found in you uh, doing the things that you have called us to do, that we would be worthy of the calling that we have received, that we would wear your name well. God, thank you for who you are. Help us to be uh, great preachers and, and missionaries for you, that we would be effective in our ministry just as this man was.
pray this in your name. Amen.